All right. Well, I think it's I think it's safe to say that um, none of us longs to be a poor example. You can pick your pick your issue. I don't think any of us sets out to be a bad example in anything. We might recognize some areas in which we are maybe not great examples or where we need improvement in how we are being an example, but I don't think anyone would just say, yeah, I, I want to be a bad example. That's not usually how we think. Sometimes uh, there's debate about what constitutes a good example. So, for instance, in the world of business, there's different types of uh, philosophies of how to run a business. So depending on how you think it's best to run a business will depend on what business you think is a good example. So if you think the customer should always be first in your thinking as a business, then you'll think that businesses who operate like that are good examples. If you think your staff should be your first priority, then customers, then any business that runs like that you'll think would be a good example. So likewise, amongst Christians, there is going to be disagreement over what... um, churches serve as good examples to others. And so and today we're going to be looking uh, at this passage that was read earlier uh, within the First Thessalonians, where Paul commends the Thessalonians for being a good example. Now we as a church cannot control um, how, whether or not other people out there will view us as a good example, um, but we can see what the Bible says is a good example, and we can strive to be like that. Whether or not anyone else notices, whether or not we get any commendation from anyone, or if we don't. So we want to look then, see what it is that the Bible says we should strive for in order to be a good example to others. And that's in many ways what this whole series is about as we go through 1 Thessalonians, as we look at a faithful church. What is a faithful church? So today, we're looking at uh, from chapter 1, verses 5, the second half of verse 5, through to the end of the chapter, we're looking at a faithful chirp, church uh, and examples of other Christians. So we've even got technology going, and uh, we'll see how this plays out here uh, as we go. But uh, so far, we're in shape. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, give us grace that we might hear the word and believe it, and that we might be changed by it. God, give us grace to be good examples as individuals and as a church. Lord, we are very uh, aware of our imperfections and how we fall short of being a good example so often. And so we need you or we will fail. We will fritter away our time and our lives, and we do not want that. We want to please you in all things, and I pray that you would give us grace that we might do that and even do work in our hearts now during this time. Lord, we are not here for nothing. We want to hear your word, and we desire to see you work in our hearts and lives and in the hearts and lives of those sitting around us that together we might honor you. We ask you to do this uh, for your name's sake. Amen. Uh, We read this chapter, chapter 1, at the start of the service, Kelly did for us, so we're just basically going to dive into it. Uh, Last week we saw how a faithful church uh, is worthy of our gratitude and prayers of thanksgiving, and then we looked at how a faithful church is filled with expressions of faith, hope, and love, and then we looked at how a faithful church is chosen by God 
and bears his marks. We left off in the middle of verse 5. So as we come to uh, the second half of verse 5 through to the end of chapter 10, they're really a continuation of Paul's thought and of why it is that Paul was confident that the Thessalonians were chosen by God. So if you'll remember from last week, we talked a little bit about ways to know if one or a group of people are chosen by God or not, ways to know if one is elect, chosen by God. Uh, That's from the first half of verse 5, and really he's continuing that idea here. So verses 6 to 10 are further evidence of how he's confident, why he's confident, uh, that they are in fact chosen by God. And and he zones in specifically on how they've become examples to uh, other Christians throughout the region. So the first thing we want to look at um, is a, uh, a church that is a good example is, first of all, imitating Jesus and the apostles by joyfully receiving the word and, su- and the suffering that comes with it. So imitating Jesus and the apostles by joyfully receiving the word of God and the suffering that comes with it. This is the mark, first mark of a church that is a good example. So read with me, second half of verse 5. He says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Again, when he says we here, he's talking about himself and Silas and Timothy, the authors of, um, of, of this book. And, uh, but as we talked about last week, Paul is really the main guy behind this. And, uh, and so here we have Paul reminding them of the character that he and his companions displayed while they were at Thessalonica. And we're going to look more at this character uh, in, next week as we get into chapter 2. He's going to elaborate on what kind of men they prove to be. The, the thing's not working, Harley, if you're able to advance it one. Um, so, uh, notice uh, here that their character, the character of these men as they came into Thessalonica and preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, the character of, the, of these men is not irrelevant. Um, and again, we'll see this more in the next couple of weeks, but their motives and their character as gospel witnesses uh, matter, and it does matter. It matters for all gospel witnesses. So, he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be. So there's the outline behind me. If, uh, if you get lost, we're uh, number one there. So um, notice also here, Paul says that they were seeking to be trustworthy witnesses, men of good character, for their sake, for your sake, he says. So this is not out of a selfish gain. They're not there to try and get something out of them. It's for their sake. His desire is for good for them, for their benefit. And as a result of of seeing this, the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul, his companions, and he says, of the Lord Jesus himself. And so imitating is the idea of mimicking, copying somebody. I think we understand that fairly easily. And he goes on to describe the specific way that they imitated Paul and Jesus. Um, but before we get into that, Uh, It's worth mentioning that this really is indeed the goal of of the Christian life in so many things, is to imitate, to be like Jesus, and to be like his apostles, those who set a good example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, And of course, there's certain ways that we can't imitate Jesus, obviously, as the Son of God, and speaking to storms that are, uh, and having them just be stilled, uh, that's outside of our 
ability. We can pray for that kind of thing to happen, but we don't have that ability. There are certain gifts that went along with the apostles that we likewise don't have. Um, But this is generally how the Christian life is supposed to be. We're to be mimicking and imitating Christ and his apostles. But here, uh, Paul focuses on a specific way that they imitated Paul and Jesus. He says in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, or with the result that, you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So Paul's saying the specific way that they became imitators of Paul and Christ is that they received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And this then resulted in them, this is the reason why they became an example throughout the regions of Macedonia and Achaia, the surrounding regions which they lived. So in Acts 17, which tells us the story of how the church was founded in uh, Thessalonica, which we uh, looked at and read last week, uh, we see that Paul and Silas, and likely Timothy too, but it's not mentioned in in Acts 17, uh, were, were persecuted when they preached the gospel in Thessalonica. They were run out of town by the Jews who stirred up the crowd and brought charges specifically of turning the world upside down and undermining Caesar by declaring another king, namely Jesus. So that's in Acts 17, 5-7. And they brought these charges before the local officials. These were officials of the city of Thessalonica who were told in Acts 17, 8 were uh, disturbed when they heard these things. So from the very beginning, the Thessalonians, as they see these men come in and preach the gospel to them, they saw these men be persecuted. And if you look down your page in, first, in Thessalonians here to 2 verse 2, you see that they also knew that prior to coming to Thessalonica, they had been shamefully treated in Philippi. So they'd been persecuted in Philippi, then they come to Thessalonica, they're persecuted there as well. And over in, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, we see further that uh, the persecution continued after Paul and his companions left, and the Thessalonian Christians were now left to face the wrath of their countrymen, it says. So Paul is saying that their suffering was an imitation of Paul and the Lord, receiving it, receiving the, the word of the Lord, even in the midst of this affliction. And so we know that Jesus also likewise suffered in his earthly ministry. He suffered mocking, he suffered rejection, and ultimately he suffered crucifixion by the hands of ungodly men. So the Thessalonians received the word of the Lord in the midst of much affliction. And in so doing, they were imitating Paul and the Lord Jesus. They were, these men and women were persecuted for their faith. They suffered loss. So in Thessalonica, as in many places in the Roman Empire at this time, um, paganism was intimately connected to to everything in their lives, to their social life, to everything. It was part of the social fabric of society. It's who you are. It's what we do. It helps define who you are. So uh, to reject their idols then, which we'll look more at here in, in in a few minutes, Um, But it brought about a lot of consequences for them. And the Thessalonians suffered for this. So we'll we'll see more of that in a bit. And yet Paul says, not only did they just suffer, uh, they didn't just grin and bear it. 
It says that they did this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So many, many people can do and get through and stomach very difficult things, but to do so with joy from the Holy Spirit is another matter. Uh, before George Whitfield, so George Whitfield, the, the famous preacher and evangelist from uh, the 18th century, before he uh, was born again, before he became a Christian, he was a very religious man. This is his own way of, of describing himself and, uh, and, and describing his conversion. He, he, he was extremely disciplined. When he was at Oxford, he was part of the Holy Club with the Wesley brothers. They were very disciplined. They, uh, they, they would um, arise early and read. He was studying to become a minister at the time. He was learning his Greek New Testament, and uh, he was doing lot, they were doing lots of good works and helping people out. And, um, and they were uh, putting off good food. They were, they were not eating it, so they would, uh, it would help him. And, and he thought these things were, would contribute to his salvation, would help him uh, to be saved. And so as time went on, um, though out, outwardly he certainly appeared holy, we would not argue with the practice of rising early to read your Greek New Testament. We would say, wow, that's a mark of a godly man. Um, but inwardly, he was joyless. And especially the more he got to understand that he needed to be born again and there needed to be an actual change in this attitude and in his heart, he became absolutely miserable to the point of sickness on his, uh, in, and he had, had to be uh, in a bed and, and he had to quit going to school because he was so sick from it. Until finally he tells the story of how God opened his eyes uh, to his inability to gain everything. And once he'd finally given up on all of these things he was trying to do, he threw himself on the mercy and grace of God, and he was renewed within. He had a change of heart. He was born again, and he speaks of the joy with which he now, after that time forward, uh, undertook discipline. So now it was, a, it was exciting for him to pray. Uh, this was a joy to him to come before God and, and pray, pray to him. It was a joy to rise early and read his Bible and study it, and it spoke life to him and truth to him. His friends also noticed it. Uh, Charles Wesley even has a little poem uh, about uh, the way that uh, Whitfield now uh, undertook his, his labors with joy and, so, and newfound zeal. And so it's, it's possible to do good things with a joyless spirit or with a wrong attitude, to just tough it out without joy. But to receive the word of God, to believe the gospel, to suffer for it, and to do so with joy through that suffering this is how the lord did it this is how paul endured and this is how the thessalonians did it hebrews 12 2 talks about how jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame acts 5 41 talks about the apostles getting released from prison and after suffering they left this council and it says they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So this is suffering, but it's doing it joyfully. Receiving and believing the gospel and the word of God has consequences. And one of them is suffering the disdain of the unbelieving world around you. Uh, many, many Christians today think that if we love like Jesus did, then the world will applaud for us, for our sacrificial love. But this is just simply not what the Scripture teaches. Paul called him and the other apostles the scum of the earth. 
because of how they were treated. And they lived such, in so many ways, such wretched looking lives. They're constantly uh, under attack and under assault. Um, Jesus obviously was crucified. Um, so even loving like Jesus got him killed. Uh, the Thessalonians suffered at the hand of their countrymen, we're told here. And this is the way it is. Um, but again, the model is not just facing misery and therefore hating life as a result. This is not confining ourselves to a life of just uh, constantly being angry and, well, everything's going to be miserable, so I just, whatever, it's the life of a Christian, I'll just deal with it. The apostles counted it joy because they were suffering for righteousness' sake, for the sake of the name of their Lord, who would return one day for them. So a question for us is, are we okay, are you okay with suffering the dislike the hatred from the world. This can come in various forms, but we are called to suffer. If anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. It'll take different forms. It might look differently depending on where we live or who we are or what job we have, but it's going to happen. And we have to ask ourselves if, if we understand that first. And are we okay with that? We must guard ourselves against the desire for an easy, comfortable, pleasure-filled life. We, uh, may such desires not keep us from speaking up when we need to. If it's speaking up for the truth of the gospel, speaking up for the life of the unborn. We just, if you paid any attention to news yesterday, uh, we saw this was on display of women marching in D.C. Um, and for women's rights but not welcoming women who were pro-life. Okay, they, those women suffered for it. And so we need to be prepared for this. As we resist any of the, the ways our, our godless society wants to pressure us into things that are not in line with Scripture. And of course, when we suffer, we want to understand, we want, we want to make sure we're suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, we can also suffer as Christians for um, for doing dumb things, for sinning. That's possible too. If you steal from your job and get caught, you're going to suffer for that. Well, that's not righteous persecution. That's justice for your sin, for your crime. And so we want to certainly do all we can to make sure we're not suffering for those reasons. But the truth is, if we stand for righteousness, there will come persecution and suffering. And so let us remember that when we suffer for Christ's sake, we take joy in knowing that we stand with faithful Christians throughout history, including the Thessalonians, including the Apostle Paul, including Christ himself, and many others through church history. So a church that is a good example is imitating Jesus and the Apostles in receiving the word joyfully, even in the midst of suffering. Second thing, a church that is a good example is known for their strong gospel witness. So Paul continues on giving further reasons why they're good examples and models in verse 8. I'll read that. Uh, verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Now, if you can advance that one, Harley, that'd be great. Okay, working on it. 
until then, uh, if you read this, if you can read that, uh, but if you can read the ESV, what we just read, uh, it appears this verse is quite straightforward. So you have um, two things that are going forth here. You have, on the one hand, it says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, so the word of the Lord has sounded forth, right? That would be the gospel sounding forth. Okay, he says, but not only that, but also, secondly, you have your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that would be uh, the news of their conversion, their reputation, what happened when Paul and them showed up and they converted. I think verses 9 and 10, they go on to talk about how this news of what went on there has spread. And so uh, it would seem to indicate there's two things going forward. You have the gospel proclamation going forward, likely in evangelism. And you also have uh, the fame and report of what happened when the gospel was preached in Thessalonica. So it appears as though we have two things going on. But if you read uh, the NASB, which some of you I know have, and it's on the screen here underneath, and basically any other English translation that I, that I found, it reads a little bit differently. And it, it has a, a little effect on, on how we sh- should understand this, I think. And so here you'll see at the top, the, you'll see the words not only are in italicized and are bold there. Because it's, it's in a different place in each translation. And the bottom one, the New American Standard, I think is the most accurate reflection of the Greek, uh, tra- the Greek, the Greek Bible. And so, um, and like I said, this is reflected in virtually every other English translation except the ESV. Uh, for some reason, moves it forward in the sentence. And so, um, if you take it this way, the bottom way with the NASB, then it appears that the first line and the fourth line, so the top line and the bottom line, are parallels and refer to the same thing. So if this is referring to two different things, an evangelistic mission and the report of their conversion of faith, then the sentence becomes awkward, just the way it's written. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth. It's an awkward sentence. So let me give you an illustration of that. If I were to say, imagine if I were to say to Christina, my wife, uh, if I said, you look beautiful, not only in the black dress, but also in the red dress, you are a great cook. That... If I say that, I have two things going on. You're a beautiful woman, not only in the red dress, but also in the black dress. You are a great cook. That doesn't sound right to us, does it? It sounds like an awkward sentence. I have two things going on. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. But if I said to her, you look beautiful, not only in the black dress, but also in the red dress, you are amazing. I think we would understand that makes a little more sense because you are beautiful, you are amazing, they're really referring to the same thing that I think she's beautiful. So in verse 8, what is he talking about? Do we have, are there two different things going on or, or what, what is it that's happening? So most interpreters, and when I say that, I mean most interpreters, uh, uh, authors, scholars, um, commentators who, and I mean that of people that we would generally trust to be reliable and believe the Bible, uh, most of those people would understand this to be referring to the gospel going forth as the result of the fame 
of their conversion and steadfastness spreading everywhere. So people are finding out what happened in Thessalonica. And as this happens, the gospel itself is also going forward and spreading. And this seems to be consistent with verse 9 and 10, which speaks of the reports that Paul's hearing from others about what happened in Thessalonica. So some would conclude then that they weren't likely sending people on evangelistic missions at this point. Um, This doesn't mean it would be bad or wrong. Um, The issue here is what is being emphasized in this passage, in this text. Is it the proclamation of the gospel through evangelism, or is it on the report of their salvation and what happened when the apostles and his team, the apostle Paul and his team preached there? So I think the emphasis is on the latter part. Um, That is, the emphasis is on the news of what happened when Paul and his friends showed up in Thessalonica. That is spreading everywhere about how these Thessalonians uh, Thessalonians, uh, repented, trusted Christ, and have remained steadfast. This is spreading everywhere. And as it does, the gospel goes with this news. And so I would say that's the emphasis, but I would also just add, um, how is it that this news would spread? How does such news spread? Well, they've got to be telling people right? So Thessalonica was a major city in Macedonia. A main trade route went through it. The Thessalonians had influence in all spheres of life throughout the region. And so people would have been coming into the city, through the city, uh, and as Christians did that, they would have rubbed shoulders with the Christians in Thessalonica, who clearly were telling everybody what happened. They're telling people about their conversion. They would have had to explain themselves to their family members, to their neighbors, as to why they are no longer worshiping those former idols, like all of their family members do and have, and all of their friends have. And this would have had implications everywhere. And so they were explaining themselves, and they'd be explaining the gospel as well. And as people are passing through and coming through, they're taking this news with them throughout Macedonia and throughout Achaia. I think that's what is underneath this. And, it, and it's likely they're, they're, explain, they're using the testimony of what happened to them as an excuse to share the gospel with as many people as they could. And so I, the emphasis is on the news of their faith, but this happens because they're telling people what happened. So they are evangelizing. They are proclaiming the gospel as well. So the issue is that the Thessalonians, they have a strong gospel witness. They are known all over the place as being gospel people. They've believed it. They've been converted. They've turned from idols. And as a result of their ensuing faithfulness, even in the midst of affliction, and as a result of their, no doubt, quickness to talk about it and tell others about the gospel and about Christ, they are known everywhere, Paul says, within just several months, they're known everywhere as being faithful gospel people. So this, this letter is likely written anywhere from six, a few months to maybe a year after Paul had been there. So it's not that much time has gone by, and yet they're known for being believers, for being faithful. The gospel goes with it as that news goes out as well. So a faithful church is known for its strong gospel witness, for being gospel people. So how do we do this? Well, if we are going to be gospel people, then we've got to believe the gospel. Right? You can't be known as gospel people if, you're not, if we're not actually 
people who believe the gospel. So that may be a really obvious point, but the first thing is we have to trust Christ. We have to believe and we have to believe this gospel. We have to repent of our sin, trust Christ who died and rose for sinners. And we must return to this. We must be those people who return to this daily. We don't move on from this. We must return every day to our continual need for God's grace. And we even just sang it, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. We are debtors to grace daily. Every day we need it. And we are only made God's children uh, through grace given to us through Christ, through faith in Christ. We pray only in the name of Jesus as a result of His grace given to us. We, we can only come to, to, to God now in this place, gather in worship to God. Our only right to come before the Father is through the name of His Son and in His righteousness because we have none of our own. And that's every day got to be our stance, our position. We wake up, we pray, but not in our own righteousness because we have none. We need Christ again today. Daily we are constrained to be debtors to His grace. So we've got to be, uh, actually be those gospel people if we are to be known as gospel people. And then I would add, uh, a church that is known as a gospel church will be a church that tells people about the gospel and shares about how and why it is we believe what we believe. So here's some thoughts on this as we think about sharing the gospel with other people. A a few things. Um, I would encourage us to think of ways to evangelize people. Think of different ways. It could be maybe giving out Bibles, knowing someone who, who needs a Bible, giving that out. Maybe it's everybody on your street. Maybe it's a certain group of people that... Uh, uh, it's all the French-speaking people in Weyburn. I don't know. Just pick it. It could be anybody. Uh, think of ways to get the gospel out. Uh, write letters. You can write letters to people or to friends. Send it in the mail. That'll blow their mind. Uh, write cards for people with the gospel in it for, uh, for holidays. So we just had Christmas. We can include the gospel, hand those out to neighbors. You could even do it uh, Valentine's Day is coming out. Uh, you could write a card, and it's a time where people are talking about love, and we can transition in the, that the God's love is shown to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you can explain the gospel to neighbors that way. You can hand those out with your kids as well. Um, there's ways, Aaron Cross is someone we support here, and he's, on the, he's regularly out and would love help, and we can join him at the university or wherever. Another thing, perhaps, if all of that is intimidating and, and nerve-wracking, or even if it's not, but you could, for the month of March, we're going to be on, on Wednesdays, we're going to be talking about evangelism and, and some evangelism training and trying to equip uh, one another and help each other out. So if that, especially if, if feeling ill-equipped is a concern for you, um, then, as, uh, then as best you can, clear your schedule for Wednesday nights in March and, uh, and come on out. And um, together we're going to pray and work towards evangelism. So uh, a faithful church is known for their strong gospel witness. Thirdly, a church that is a good example is known for lives that reflect the gospel known for lives that reflect the gospel. So I've already basically stated this, but I think it gets more to the point, Paul does, in in verses 9 to 10. So again, this is how he knows they've become examples to everybody. 
He says, for they themselves, this is other people all over the place where Paul's been, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So this is the reception that Paul and his companions had uh, when they came. It's known that when they showed up in Thessalonica, they had a good reception from some of these people, people these, those who went on to believe and are, are now part of this church. So he knows it was a good reception. Many who believed... In chapter 2, we'll go on, we'll see a little more of this reception. But uh, Paul continues in verse 9 and 10. They, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the lives of the Thessalonians consistently reflected the truth of the gospel. They were known for having turned from idols, for example. So again, we, we tend to think of idolatry today as being just silly. So we, would, we might be tempted to find this unimpressive, that they would turn from idols. We would think of a little thing sitting on a table somewhere, and we would think, well, oh yeah, big deal, they turned from that. Anyone should, that's ridiculous. That's how we often think of idolatry. And so we might think this is not that impressive, But that's not all idolatry was. For example, the imperial cult where people worshipped the emperor, it was much more involved and and a part of their everyday life. So the emperor was seen as the benefactor of the city Thessalonica. And so we appease the emperor and join in this emperor cult worship, and he treats us nicely. In fact, Thessalonica was known as a free city which means they were able to retain some of their uh, freedoms, um, which is seen in even Acts 17, where they're not, uh, uh, the Christians are not hauled before the Romans, they're hauled before the city officials. Thessalonica had enough freedom to be able to try some of their own cases like that. And so they are able to have this, and this, this way of life in their prosperous city because they keep things good with Rome. And part of how they keep things good with Rome is through this imperial cult worship. And now you've got these Christians who've declared, no, Christ is king, we will not worship the emperor, and this is very unsettling for them. In a, in a, in a city and in a, a region, Macedonia, that had had a history of rebellion against Rome. And so this, this is something that these officials are very upset about. That's why they're troubled. We don't want another insurrection that's going to have Rome come down hard on us and we're going to ruin this way of life we have. And so just simply rejecting that idolatry and worshiping the emperor has some serious implications for them and potentially for the whole city. So this is not just a silly thing that we can just say, oh, silly people, good, they should have turned. This was, a, this was a big deal for them to turn away from idolatry. It's turning their back on some of their family members who would not have understood it, and their, their friends, their social network. So this is, this is a significant thing. I hope you feel that and see that. Religious life was not private. So they suffered loss of friendship, family ties, and certainly more than that. So this was a significant repentance from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to repent of our sins, to repent of our idolatry, all the things we put before God and put in His place and tend to worship. They could be uh, idols of the heart as well. 
And, and the Thessalonians, though, they, they turned from these idols to worship God, and they did it in an exemplary way, an extraordinary way. In 1 Corinthians, we see the Corinthians struggled with it, and they wanted to go back. Some of them were going back into the old temples and eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols in the temple, and Paul saying no to that. The Thessalonians had broken with it, and they were commendable for it. It is consistent with what the gospel preaches, to repent, trust Christ. They're also known for, it says, waiting for the Son from heaven, Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, and who, he says, delivers us from the wrath to come. So herein lies really the essence of the gospel. Notice this fame of their uh, faith this, that's, that's gone out. It's not just that, oh, they're really moral people now. That's not just it. It's actually the content of what they believed is included in, in, this, in this fame that's gone out. They are known specifically for what they believed and how it resulted in living a certain way, living in light of Christ's return. They were waiting on Jesus. The wrath to come, uh, it's a reference to God's coming wrath against unrighteousness. It's a wrath to come at the end time when God will put away all unrighteousness, when sinners who have not repented and trust in Christ will be cast eternally into hell, justly by God. And it is this wrath, it says, that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, turns back. He appeases this wrath for all who repent and have trusted in Christ. And this is what the Thessalonians are looking towards and living in light of and waiting for. This is what motivates their staying steadfast in the midst of much affliction. This is what could motivate us as we stay steadfast in the midst of all the pressure to cave, to believe this, to go along with the agenda of our world around us. We know that this is not it. By faith, we know Christ is returning And when he comes, he's going to come with wrath against sin. And we are awaiting our redemption at that time. And and we will be justified then. We will be vindicated. So I think this is tied to last week we looked at their steadfastness of hope from earlier. This is is what that is. They're waiting for him. They're looking to him. And this motivates their joy. This is why they can have joy even as they suffer the affliction. And so all of this, the way they are living, it's consistent with what the gospel is. If Jesus saves believers from the wrath to come, then believers ought to live in light of that day, not easily rattled by opposition. It doesn't mean we're not ever rattled. It doesn't mean we're not ever scared. It doesn't mean we don't ever struggle or lack joy. But this is what we are aiming for to replace that even with this truth. So I ask us all this question, do, does your life reflect the truth of the gospel? Have you turned from idols to serve the living and true God? And again, this could be idols of the heart. It could, it could be the pursuit of money. It could be the desire for pleasure, various pleasures, whatever that, that pleasure could be could be a desire for popularity, fame, honor, to be well thought of, whatever it could be. 
Do you still seek to cling to idols? The call of the gospel is to repent, to turn from those things, whatever the cost may be, and to turn to the living God through faith in Christ. Another question for us, what is, what is the general direction of your affections and desires during the day? These just kind of test questions for us, for all of us. Uh, do you strive to live in light of Christ's return? Can it be said of us that we are awaiting Jesus? Does this describe us? Certainly we have things we've got to do, we've got jobs to go to, but do we do these even as unto the Lord, knowing that work is a gift from Him and knowing that He will return one day? Another question for us, how do, how do you spend your spare time? Even that word spare time, that's still actually the Lord's time. Do we view it that way? Or is it just my time? It's my time, me time. I do what I want now. How do you spend that time? Does it reflect one who's forsaken idols, serves God, is waiting upon the Lord Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come? Or do you go back to your idols when you have a spare moment? Does your spare time reflect, just purely reflect self-gratification? Uh, John Calvin was near his deathbed, the reformer. He was very sick, and so he would have people brought into his room so he could teach them there. And when he was implored by friends, people who loved him and cared about him, to rest, please rest, please don't do this, just rest, he famously replied, what? Would you, would you have the Lord find me idle at his coming? The man, is di- the man is dying, and he refuses to stop. I, th- I think it would have been appropriate for him to rest. Let me just say that. I think that's appropriate. I'm just simply saying that attitude, though, is he, he knows the Lord's coming, and he, I dare not let him find me doing nothing, finding me idle. Of course, I think, again, he could have rested and probably should have, and I don't think he would have been chastised for that. But that attitude, do we have that? So if you fall short in any of these things, as we all do, and I ask myself these same questions, we, we must look, we must repent. We need to repent of that. If it's how we're spending our time, our spare time, whatever it might be, we need to repent of those things. And we need to, again, look to Jesus, daily debtors to his grace. Repent of those things. Make war against those idols, those things we tend to want to run to that we might have lives that are consistent with the gospel that we believe and proclaim. And of course, the gospel is true even when we fail and even if we fail. It's not totally up to us to convince everybody by the greatness of our lives. But this should be the trajectory. We're repenting of sin when we find sin in our lives. We're trusting in Christ daily. It, should, it ought to be reflective in our lives. So if we want to be a church that's a good example to others, we are called to imitate Jesus and the apostles by receiving the word with joy even in the midst of affliction. If we want to be a good example to others, we are to be known for our strong gospel witness. And finally, if we're to be an example to others, uh, we're called to live lives that reflect the gospel as those who are living now as repentant sinners who are awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ who will save us from the wrath to come.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your people that are here. And God, we uh, feel the weight of your word. God, we feel the weight of our failures to live up, our failures to be good examples. God, that can feel heavy and depressing and discouraging. But God, we need to hear it. We need to hear it. And we need to be those who repent of our sin. Not pretend we're okay and measure up, but who repent when it's clear that we fall short. So wherever we fall short as individuals, I pray that you'd help us to repent of that and to get to work fighting our sin, looking to Jesus. I pray that you would increase our love for Christ. That we would, when we get spare moments, that we would have a desire to be in the Word, a desire to be in prayer, a desire to be reading books or biographies about faithful men and women of the past, that we might be stirred up to greater love for you. I pray that we would encourage one another towards that end as well, that we would desire faithfulness in one another. As a church where we fall short, help us to repent and to press forward towards faithfulness. God, may we remain steadfast. May we not flinch in the face of opposition. May we proclaim the gospel and and be known as people who believe it. And God, I pray that you would be working faithfulness in us that, that our lives would reflect and be consistent with the gospel we believe, that we would be people who are repentant, that we would be people who are turning from idols anywhere we see them, that we would be those who wait for Christ, who live in a longing and in a hope and expectation of his return and who know that our vindication will come at that time if we are trusting in Christ. God, I pray that everybody here would be looking to Jesus for grace and for mercy for their sins, that they would not suffer your wrath at the end. May we have a long view of things and long view of life and not just live in the moment. Give us eyes of faith to see these things and to live for you Uh, Help us. We so desperately need your help, all of us. Help us to not give up. Help us to press forward even now and to remember in our failure that we have a great high priest and it's only in his name that we can come. And so we pray all of these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.